Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hello everyone and welcome to Bouncing Back, the personal resilience science insights podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week, we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I am your host, Joanna. Let's get started. Hi guys, and welcome back to Bouncing Back, our personal resilience podcast. I am your host, Joanna, and today we've got a really interesting episode for you. So I'll be joined by Jennifer Chesick to talk about the healing power of psilocybin in depressive disorders. And this is also known as like psychedelic drugs or magic mushrooms. Now, Jennifer is an award-winning medical journalist for several national publications, a writing instructor, and a freelance book editor based in Nashville, Tennessee. Jennifer is also the author of the book Psilocybin Handbook for Women that was published in June this year. Hi, Jennifer. Thanks so much for joining us. How are you today? Hi, thanks for having me. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Um, Would you like to introduce yourself with a bit about who you are and what it is you do? Sure. Yeah. So you covered it. The basics. I am a science and medical journalist and I specialize in health and wellness. And um, I've you know recently launched this book called The Psilocybin Handbook for Women that launched in June. Again, that's about magic mushrooms and the intersection of magic mushrooms with women's health. So whether or not magic mushrooms can help with things like menopause, uh, menstrual cycle disorders and things like that. And I'm really excited about it. Awesome. What was like your research process for like the book? Yeah, uh, great question. So um, I just sort of dove right in. I got the book deal last summer in so in June. And so it was really a year long process. And I dove right into the research, digging into all of the medical studies on psilocybin. I did my own psilocybin journey because obviously it's super important to have that experience to be able to write about it accurately because it's it's almost something that you can't put into words. But I, I did my best to do that, so. Yeah, for sure, that sounds amazing. Um, and how did you get into sort of this field of work? Like what sparked your interest looking at psilocybin? Well, yeah, I'm super fascinated with women's health, of course. I love learning the mechanisms behind what's happening in the body. So for example, with, um, with menopause, what causes a hot flash? What are the mechanisms happening there? And then digging into psychedelics that, you know, obviously right now we're at this point in the research that's become really exciting where a lot of research is coming out. We're getting closer to things like perhaps FDA approval here in the U.S. where I'm located. I mean, that's probably, um, you know, a year or so out for psilocybin, but other psychedelics may uh, move a little faster. But yeah, it's just uh, it was something that I'm really fascinated about in terms of psychedelics and how they can benefit people for especially for their mental health. Yeah, for sure. I feel like there is a bit of a stigma surrounding, you know, like magic mushrooms and like talking about it in a non-recreational way. So that's so interesting how there's a lot more research coming out about it. 
yes, it's very exciting. And I just love the idea of merging the two. So psychedelics with women's health, because women's health is really often, at least in the U.S., it's kind of an afterthought. So that's unfortunate. Yeah, for sure. Um, Before we jump into our questions for today, I'd love to start off by getting to know you a bit better with our section we like to call Have You Met Jennifer? So how this works is I've got a few topics here. And when I say the word, you can just share the first thing that comes into your mind. Beautiful. So my first one for you is books. Well, I'm a huge book lover. I would say that one of my favorite books is called In the Distance by Hernan Diaz. He also has another book out called Trust and that one, the Pulitzer um, this year, I believe. So, yeah. Wow. What's that one about? Uh, Trust is about, gosh, it's really hard to explain, but it it digs into the financial crisis of the um, 1920 or I'm sorry, 1930s. And well, night leading up to the 1930s, and uh, it involves a husband and a wife, and just all these things that sort of happen. I, I don't want to give anything away, no spoilers. Yeah, but it's really good. that sounds really interesting. Is it like nonfiction or fiction? It's fiction, yeah. So okay. he write, he typically writes fiction, as far as I know. Beautiful. I love fiction. I don't read that much nonfiction, but I can so get into like any fictional book. It's so good. Absolutely, yes. Also, my next one for you is movies. <laughs> um, yeah, I love movies, especially horror movies are some of my favorite things. Uh, and, and not just any particular one. But uh, what's fascinating about horror is that research actually shows that horror movies can can make us feel relaxed, especially after we were done watching. Because during a horror movie, we were faced with all this sort of heightened uh, stress or heightened anxiety or tension as, as to what's going on in the movie. And then afterwards, you kind of have this release. So it's kind of an interesting thing. And especially since we when we're watching a horror movie, we know it's not real. We can sort of lean into that tension. And then again, there's that release after. Yeah, for sure. I love horror movies. I have this tendency of like watching them and knowing they're going to like really freak me out after. But I still watch it for kind of like the rush that you get while you're watching it. Uh, It's so good. Do you have like a favorite? I, you know, I'm a huge fan of the old Freddy Krueger, you know, series. Um, so, yeah, I, I've rewatched them many times with my husband. We just were obsessed. Yeah, for sure. I love the Conjuring series. Um, absolutely. Definitely. There are so many good ones out there. I mean, oh. going back to Poltergeist, all of that. So good. Yeah, for sure. Uh, perfect. I'd love to ask you about podcasts next. Ah, yeah. Well, I've been listening to one called Modern Psychedelics. I've been listening to that ever since I got the book deal. And it's hosted by a woman named Lana Pribick. And she's just super um, fascinating and knowledgeable about all sorts of psychedelics and the logistics of doing a journey with any psychedelic. So I just really enjoy her work. Yeah, awesome. Do you get like inspiration from a lot of other people who work in like the same sort of field? Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, fellow journalists. And then, of course, you know, talking to all these different people in the psychedelic industry has been really inspiring. And I'm just so um, I'm so excited about all the work that's being done in this arena. Yeah, I love to hear that. And my next one for you is famous role model. Now, I know famous role models are a bit hard to sort of like like pinpoint, but it could be just anyone in your life that you find inspirational even. 
Uh, well, I'm going to go to anyone in my life because I think it's hard to pinpoint a famous person because there yeah. are so many, as you said. Yeah. But my role model, my ultimate role model has always been my mom. I just appreciate how she conducts herself with um, grace and kindness towards others and to all living things. And uh, so when I when I'm questioning my own morals or something like that, I always go back to what would my mother say or what would she do? And uh, so she's my ultimate role model and my best friend. Oh, that's so beautiful. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, <laughs> let's jump straight into our interview questions now. So my first one for you is why is resilience important in our life? Oh, yeah. So life throws at us so many punches, right? And resiliency is important to help us get through those really difficult times so that we don't lose hope so that we can kind of soldier on and keep putting 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 one foot in front of the other and keep moving forward in life. Yeah, for sure. And I feel like resilience is one of those things that you never truly feel satisfied with. I feel like it's something that you continue building throughout your entire life. You're never like, I'm totally resilient now, like I'm done with being resilient. So that's why I love the concept of resilience because it's something that you can grow in so many different like facets as well. Absolutely. I mean, that's the thing. Life throws things at you that are what you think you've gone through something difficult and then another thing comes along. Hopefully you get a reprieve in the middle but you just never know what the next thing is. And if you have resilience or you're building that, then you can still get through those the next hurdle, even if it's a bigger one or a totally different one than the one you got through before. 100%. I feel like I've definitely had experiences where I'll go through something and I'm like, okay, I've just been through something hard. Surely there's nothing else that could come my way. And then you go through something else and then something else happens as well. And then I feel like, it's just such a great like learning experience as well. So yeah, always a good like opportunity to build on yourself. And that kind of leads into my next question. Um, so do you think that being resilient means being adverse? I mean, immune to stresses and adversity? Oh, definitely not. Like, I don't think anyone is immune to being stressed or uh, facing adversity. That's, you know, these things happen to everyone and we all get stressed at some point, no matter how resilient you are. We all face difficult challenge, ta challenges in our lives. But I think what resiliency is at its core is knowing how to use the tools that you have within yourself to really get through these challenging times and knowing how and when to lean on your support system and, and just not leaving it so that you're dealing with something on your own. We have support systems out there who, you know, with people, really beloved people in our lives who want to help us. And so I think really resilience is just understanding which tools you have and leaning on those tools when we need them. 100% I don't feel like resilience means that you're invincible to everything just because you say you're resilient it doesn't mean you can't be affected by different things that are stressing you in your life. Absolutely we all have to deal with difficult emotions at times whether that be grief, depression, um, anxiety, all of that and again just going back to understanding the tools that you have within yourself to get through those things is important. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's the perfect lead in to talking about our topic for today, which is psilocybin. So what is it? <laughs> yeah, great question. So psilocybin, a difficult word to say, yeah. is a psychedelic. It's a psychedelic, but psilocybin is a compound in magic mushrooms. So 
um, if you ingest magic mushrooms. Psilocybin is the compound that um, it actually turns into another compound called psilocin because the as it as it, as it is metabolized in the body, that is what happens. But um, this is the the a psilocin then is the compound that ultimately causes the psychedelic effects. But it, what it does is it activates your serotonin receptors. Yeah, for sure. And I obviously there's like regular mushrooms that you eat in like everyday life. And then there are magic mushrooms. Is there like a difference in the way they grow or the way they're sourced? Yeah, there's certainly differences in the way that they grow and the way that they're sourced. I don't know all of the details on that. I'm not like a um, mycologist or anything <laughs> like that. But um, but yeah, the, the difference is obviously regular mushrooms don't have psychedelic effects. So when we're thinking of mushrooms like our, you know, shiitake mushroom or a portobello, like common <laughs> mushrooms that are in food, those are not psychedelic, of course. It's just um, the psilocybin species. And there's another, uh, well, there, there are a bunch of different um, types of psilocybin. And then um, there's another uh, mushroom out there that does have um, psychoactive effects. It's called Amanita muscara. And so that's another one to know. But um, psilocybin is the one that is really extensively being researched right now. But again, yeah, there's a bunch sure. of different kinds of psilocybin mushrooms. Yeah. And how is it normally like ingested or, you know, taken? Yeah, many different ways. So um, sometimes people will grind up the actual um, dried mushroom into a powder and they'll put that in like a capsule, just like you would um, take a vitamin. And so uh, you can take it in capsule form. Some people eat the the raw mushroom. It just really, really depends on if you're game for doing that. And then other people will make a tea out of mushrooms. So there are several different ways to ingest. And of course, nowadays, as research is growing, uh, companies are developing mushroom chocolate. So it can be in a like a a small piece of chocolate or um, even in a gummy, I believe. So yeah, there are a lot of different ways if ingesting the actual mushroom is not appealing to people. I know not everyone's a fan of mushrooms and certainly not everyone's a fan of the, psych the, the psilocybin mushroom. It has a, a really weird taste. And, um, and so, uh, and it also, I think it can cause, when you ingest it in the raw mushroom form, that could cause a little nausea because it's really okay. a tough mushroom and the the cell wall is difficult to break down. So that's why a lot of people prefer ingesting it as a either in the capsule form once it's in a powder or in some other type of form like tea. Yeah, this this is such an interesting topic. Like I'm actually <laughs> so keen to ask you more questions about this because I feel like we just don't get to talk about this stuff like enough and in such like a liberating manner. Um, what do you yeah. think are some of like the most common misconceptions? when it comes to like psychedelic drugs? Yeah, that's a great question too. I think one of a common misconception is that you can become addicted to it. That's just not a thing. I mean, yes, you might really enjoy being on mushrooms, you know, having a, a the psychedelic experience, but it's not physically addicting to anyone. And um, it's not something that you're going to overdose on. So, you know, obviously we're all aware of the opioid crisis, especially in the U.S., where, you know, people are either, you know, using heroin or prescription opioids, and sometimes they are laced with fentanyl. And, uh, you know, if they're, if they're purchased on the street, and so that's causing overdoses. So I think when we start talking about 
because psilocybin is a drug, you know, we think we often equate drugs as being bad, but it doesn't, it, there's no potential to overdose on psilocybin. Yes, you might take too much and have an extreme trip in terms of having a lot of psychedelic effects, but I think that's a really common misconception. Another common misconception is that, um, You'll, you'll, you'll do a psychedelic journey and then you'll just be in that weird state of consciousness forever. And that just really doesn't happen either. Um, so yeah, things like that, or you'll lose your mind and never be the same. You know, these things are just sort of myths that are out there. Yeah. And in terms of like, you were talking about how there are some drugs that are purchased like on the street and stuff, and they could be laced with things that could be potentially dangerous for you. What's like the safest way to take psychedelic mushrooms? Yeah, I mean, I would find a trusted source, which can be really difficult with, you know, depending on the legality and where you live. But if you can find a trusted source, you know, a supplier. So a lot of people out there, underground guides, will grow their own mushrooms that to then give to clients. And that feels like a safer method than, I mean, somebody going out and hunting for psilocybin mushrooms. Because if you're not a skilled mycologist, you don't know what you're going to find in terms of mushrooms or, you know, you're not going to be skilled at identifying a mushroom. And there are many mushrooms out there that are, um, you know, absolutely poisonous and toxic and could kill you from ingesting. So I wouldn't recommend going out and hunting. I would find a trusted source the best you can. There are certain dispensaries around now that do have mushrooms in, in the form of chocolates and things like that. So, so that's an option. But in, you know, going back to this concept of, um, you know, things being laced with things that you don't want, like fentanyl. I always recommend too that no matter your source to get fentanyl testing strips and you can test a, you know, a supply just to make sure that you are not you are ingesting, at least not ingesting fentanyl. Yeah, great. And in terms of like the effects it has on us, how does taking psychedelic drugs affect our depressive disorders that, you know, some people go through? Yeah, absolutely. Such a great question. So um, I think that it helps to understand this, th what what psychedelic or what what researchers have described as the model of psychedelics, because it helps to understand why psychedelics work. So they have researchers have come up with a model. It's called the Rebus model. And that's R-E-B-U-S. And that stands for relaxed beliefs under psychedelics. And the, the reason that I'm describing that as relaxed beliefs, it's because so in normal states of consciousness, our minds are very, very rigid. So um, if you think about how we think about ourselves or how the world around us operates, our pathways and belie our beliefs, our, the way that our, our mind operates with our belief pathways are really solidified. So it's really, um, it's become very rigid. When we're kids, when we're really young and we haven't formed our identities yet, or we really don't know anything about the world, obviously our minds are super flexible or what's called entropic. They're open to new ideas and things like that. But again, as in adulthood, our minds become very rigid. And so we are prone to getting locked into the ways that we believe things, especially about ourselves. So if I had a negative body image, that can be really locked in. And that's um, you know a lot of the science behind eating disorders. But it can be anything. It can be, you know, if you have social anxiety and you think you're not accept, you, you don't behave acceptably in public. That's your belief. It's really mm -hmm. hard to change that belief. And so um, they, the psychedelic researchers, they've come up that, that developed this Rebus model 
they have described this and they've created this analogy to really describe it as well. So if we think about our, our mind in a normal state of consciousness, it's like a frozen pond or a frozen lake. It's ice. And so it's if you were to take a new belief in the form of like a rock and try to drop it into your get it into your brain, which is a frozen pond in normal states of consciousness, it doesn't gain entry, right? It doesn't do anything. But when we take a psychedelic, our belief systems become relaxed. Our brain changes a little bit, just temporarily. But um, then our minds become almost like, if we think about that lake or pond, it's thawed now on the psychedelic. And so if you take that, that rock in the form of a belief, uh, and you drop it in, it, it it gains entry and it creates a ripple effect, which is kind of a cool way of thinking about it. So again, if you are, you know, really depressed about the world, depressed about your life, you can, you have the power to change that belief system or that those pathways of thinking that have locked you into that depression or that anxiety, you have the power to change that on a psychedelic. I mean, we have the power to change it in general. It's just much harder when we're in normal states of consciousness. And so obviously a first line of defense for a lot of people who have depression when when they go in for treatment, a first line of treatment, I should say, is taking something like a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor or an SSRI, which is an antidepressant. So these are commonly prescribed and they're great medications, of course. And I you know, certainly don't want anyone going off their medications if they're on medications. But SSRIs do come with side effects. Common side effects include like weight gain or loss of libido, um, nausea can be kind of a common one. There are uh, there are many more. Um, but the other, so a lot of people don't like these side effects, of course. And then the other thing that happens with an SSRI, so an, a common antidepressant, would be that it blunts your mood quite a bit. So if we think about um, our mood, we have lows and highs. So SSRIs, not only do they blunt your lows so that you don't have such deep depression, they also blunt your highs. So you don't have like this, this enjoyment, you you have a loss of enjoyment to a certain extent, which is, which can be problematic, especially if we think about resilience, what helps us really get through some difficult times. It's it's leaning on those really joyful times, we can think about the times we've had joy, or we can think about joy in the future that gets us through difficult times. So if we are blunting our mood constantly, including our highs, then you know we could be affecting our our resilience a little bit. But additionally, I think the other important point here I want to make is that uh, research shows that with you know you can just do one psilocybin journey uh, in a psych in a therapeutic setting, and that can have very lasting effects for depression and anxiety, PTSD, and things like that. With SSRIs, you're taking them continually, day by day, and um, you know, year over year over year, compounding certain side effects, and um, and that can be really problematic for people. But with psilocybin, again, you can just do it once, and it could last for. I mean, studies are showing that it's had lasting effects for um, at least a year, and you know, we need more research on how long things can last like that. But imagine instead of doing an S using an SSRI, you're you're trying a psilocybin journey like once a year, and you repeat it a year later. Um, you know, it might be better for you. We just don't know yet. We're still studying all of that. Yeah, for sure. And with like the therapeutic journey, like how does that work? Like what could someone expect if they go into, you know, a therapeutic session with psilocybin? Yeah, I mean, that's a really great question too. So 
Um, typically what it would look like is that you would probably have this session with your therapist ahead of, you know, before you use psilocybin. So you would have a, a completely sober uh, session with your therapist and you would talk through all the logistics of, of everything and they would get to know you and understand what you're going through, understand your symptoms of depression or anxiety. And then during a psychedelic therapy session, um, you would essentially be in the room with a therapist and it would be almost like if we can think of like a yoga class where mm. at the end of the yoga class, you're like lying down on your mat, you're all relaxed. Um, sometimes you get like a, a little eye pillow over your face or whatever in yoga. It'll be a lot like it would be a lot like that where you're in a very secure space with a therapist lying down on some type of cot or um, a pouch or something like that, probably have an eye mask over your face and they would probably be playing relaxing music for you through either headphones or just in the room. And generally the therapist is not going to interfere with your journey. They'll give you your dose of what, you know, however many grams that they want to give you. And then you go through your psychedelic journey and it's your own personal experience. But the therapist, of course, is there to help you if you're having any anxiety crop up because that may happen you might go through something a little challenging have a challenging moment during your trip that you may need a little assistance with so the therapist is there to make sure that you feel really comfortable and to guide you if anything like that crops up but in general a therapist wouldn't be interfering with your journey itself they want the journey to sort of unfold as it's going to be and then later um, you would have so that whole experience when you're with the therapist and doing the psychedelic session that may be like a six hour session because it mm -hmm. takes a while for the 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 drug to take effect and then you have this lengthy journey and then you have to come down from it and so they don't want to just send you out into the world while you're still experiencing the psychedelic effects and and then later you would come back and have a session or several sessions with the therapist to work through what you learned during your psychedelic journey. And, and then that's the importance of um, that's integration, essentially. And we could talk more about integra integration if you would like. Yeah, for sure. And just in terms of like the process after like the post trip and when you're talking about like your experience and everything, is it common to like remember everything that happened? Because six hours is a really long time. It is. I think a really good recommendation for people is after your right after your journey to grab a pen and paper or even if you just want to record some notes on your 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 phone or something like that to to talk through what happened in your journey really quick. I mean, whether that again, you can journal or just record your voice if you're not someone who enjoys writing, um, you can you can just share kind of, you know, get out really quickly what you what you experienced, because yeah, you don't want to forget it. Um, you know, obviously, it will probably be very memorable in many instances, but there might be details that you would forget. So the more the more you can document it, the better. And then in integration, you can think about, you know, when you're back with your therapist later, when you're not on the psychedelic, you can work through the things that came up. And the, the importance of integration really is that um, if you don't if you don't ever think about what happened in your journey, you may not learn anything from it or you may not have like the beneficial effects of it, you know, um, because the beneficial effects come from what you learn from it and then implementing behavior change, implementing belief changes and things like that. So that's why it's so important for 
for doing integration after, you know, or during, you know, after you've been with a therapist? Yeah. And I'm sure everyone's like journey would be different, but what can people expect while they are on this journey? Yeah, I think it's important to know that um, you that a lot of different things can happen. So uh, we we've often seen in movies where people have done a psychedelic drug and then they see like visuals, things like um, geometric shapes or, mm-hmm. um, you know, for example, when I did my own journey, the the sofa that I was sitting on kind of seemed like it was breathing. <laughs> like that's not supposed to happen. Sofas <laughs> don't breathe. But um yeah, so things like that can happen. You would probably have a lot of visual, um, like the the colors can seem really vivid. So another example of that would be um, I was outside during one of my journeys and the, the trees looked just super green and the grass. So you may have a lot of vivid colors. You may also have what's called, I think it's called synesthesia. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that mm. correctly. But um, what that means is that, um, you know, you might... Uh, you look at the color, you see the color orange and feel a taste in your mouth of something, you know, it's just the, you experience one scent through another. So that can happen. Um, So those are some of the things that can just generally happen in terms of your physical sensations. But what's happening in your mind is really that the, the, so the the serotonin, the, the psychedelic, the psilocybin activates your serotonin receptors. And then that does different things in your brain, of course. And so a few things to keep in mind are that um, you may be able to, it's almost like you're doing some mental time travel. You can kind of navigate through your past and, and into your future even. But with your past, you, um, you, can, you can access memories that maybe are, that you maybe wouldn't be able to access in normal states of consciousness. Like you might be able to think back to a time when you're a child in normal state of consciousness and kind of have a vague memory about a camping trip that you took or something like that. But during a psychedelic session, you may have a bigger access to that memory and be it becomes much more vivid for you, um, which can be a really great thing. The other thing to consider, though, is that, um, you know, you may have trauma come up because you're remembering something that was traumatic um, and in a more in a deeper way. However, I don't want that to scare anyone, um, you know, because what happens when you're on the psychedelic is that you're able to view trauma without the fear response and without the anxiety for the most part and, um, and, and navigate and reprocess trauma in better ways than you were, than you could in a normal state of consciousness. And the reason for that, so researchers came up with the term for this, it's called the helioscope effect. So a helioscope is um, in you know everyday life is something that that scientists use to look at the sun because obviously we're not supposed to look directly at the sun. <laughs> but um, with a helioscope, the helioscope provides like a filter, a safe filter for your eyes, and it also um, it also can create I think a more vivid image of the sun as well. And so that is what um, when you when you're on a psychedelic, you can think about this helioscope effect that the the psychedelic is preventing you from seeing that it, it, it gives you access to the trauma and the memory, but you're going to view it from a safe distance or from a safe filter using with a heli- like a helioscope essentially. But you may, again, it may be very vivid. And so um, it's not to say that anxiety won't ever come up during a journey, but you're often able to look at trauma and, and view it in a different way than you would if you were in a normal state of consciousness. So um, so that's really important to to keep in mind as well. 
Yeah, for sure. And this seems like a lot more of an intentional kind of journey. Would you say it? you go into it in a different mindset compared to if you're taking magic mushrooms recreationally? Yeah, so you could think of um, people taking recreationally. There's nothing wrong with taking recreationally, but, um, you know, oftentimes people do that at, say, like a music festival or something, or they're at a party and they, you know, decide, oh, somebody's passing around psilocybin, I'm going to take that and have some fun. That's going to be probably a very different experience than doing it in a very therapeutic setting, because simply you're you're at a party or a festival, you're not going to be introspective, right? You're going to be focused on the outside world around you as opposed to thinking about your life or, um, you know, just kind of having this quiet moment. But in a therapeutic session, you are probably going to be thinking about your life and um, doing that sort of mental time travel, thinking about things that you maybe perhaps want to deal with or, you know, grapple with or reassess in terms of traumas or, um, you know, navigating, you know, your depression or anxiety and things like that. So it would be a very different experience than if you were in a recreational setting. And when I say therapeutic experience, I don't always mean that you're that you have to be with a therapist, you know, um, you could have someone that you trust that you know, who also maybe has experience with psychedelics, they could serve as your what's called a trip setter. It sounds like a babysitter, but it's they're they're basically watching you during your trip. And, yeah. um, and so they could do that for you. And as long as I, I would say that that it that shouldn't be done if you're really navigating with a lot of depression or a lot of heavy trauma. Um, but, you know, for the average person, they could you could probably do that and still have a very therapeutic journey where you navigate certain things in your life and, and have a very um, meaningful experience with psilocybin as opposed to, you know, again, being at a festival festival that's not to say that festivals can't be meaningful they absolutely can <laughs> you know you're probably going to have a different two different experiences based on where you are in your environment yeah super interesting um so what are some of like the current understandings about like the healing power of psilocybin for depressive disorders yeah so i i actually just came across this study today as i was doing some other work and um so this study, I think it involved uh, about 100 participant clinical trial. It was a clinical trial, 100 participants in this clinical trial. And um, it, it was a double blind placebo crossover trial. So um, half the participants had psilocybin in a therapeutic setting with a therapist and half had, you know, a placebo and it, and it ended up being a, a form of vitamin B3. So, <laughs> um, so that was the placebo. But um but it, it it found that more people in the psilocybin, when they did psilocybin, had beneficial effects for depression, meaning it, it eased some of their symptoms and, uh, and it was lasting for at least six weeks after their journey. So more people out of the psilocybin um, cohort had that experience than more people out of the, the vitamin B3 group, the placebo group. And then, of course, the participants crossed over and got to try the psilocybin if they weren't allowed to try it before. But I think, yeah, it was just a really interesting study in that, um, you know, we are we are kind of solidifying through clinical trials that it is a very therapeutic thing for people with depression, especially treatment-resistant depression. But that doesn't necessarily ha mean that you have to wait to be determined that you have treatment resistant depression before you engage with psilocybin assisted therapy. Yeah, for sure. And in terms of like the main 
uh, like psychological impacts. What can someone expect to feel after, you know, having one journey? Yeah, um, a, a great question. So a couple of the things that crop up during a psilocybin journey, there are two things I want to talk about. One is called ego death. And the other is oceanic boundlessness. These are also terms that are used to describe what happens during a psychedelic session. Yeah. Um, ego death is, um, so we all in our brains, we have what's called the default mode network. And so that is a network of brain regions that work together and they form our sense of self and our, you know, our identity. Um, they're, they, they're, the default mode network is also involved in memory, memory processing and things like that. So during a psilocybin journey, there's something that happens with the default mode network. Default mode network that's it's temporary where there's like certain areas disconnect and other areas connect. You know, it's kind of I don't know all the specific details of that without digging into my notes about that. But um, but what happens if with that because it, that is dealing with your sense of self, there's some decoupling in that network that happens that suddenly. Um, you can experience what's called ego death. And what that means is that you, uh, it, it can mean that you kind of forget who you are temporarily or um, that you really lose like elements of yourself temporarily. And that can be scary, but that doesn't happen to everyone. That typically happens. That extreme would happen with what what's called a heroic dose. So a heroic dose would be like above, like five grams or above. But most psychedelic sessions with say a therapist would be something like a um, 2.5 grams or three grams, about three grams. So right in okay. there. And so the, when the ego, when ego death happens in a lower dose scenario like that, um, I mean, a, a three gram dose is actually not a low dose, but it's a dose in a therapeutic setting. And so when, when ego death happens, you might, um, instead of like losing just all these elements of yourself, you might just feel less focused on yourself or thinking about yourself as the solo person in the universe dealing with all of your problems and you start to feel more connected with the rest of the universe or it might be that you feel more connected with the people around you or in your life in general so for example during my psilocybin journey i felt very um even though i wasn't with anyone else other than my psilocybin guide and my trip sitter I um, felt very connected to the people that I know and love and who love me, who I know love me back. I could almost feel in my body the love that they have for me. And that was really profound. And so that connection that you can feel, I mean, I just talked about ego death where, um, where you, you, you're focusing less on yourself, but then that element where you become connected with everything else. Um, that's called oceanic boundlessness. And that's that can have, I think, a really profound effect on um, on depression simply because if we if we often we know we have a support system out there, but to be able to really feel that support system could help boost you out of depression at times, I think. And and so some of those effects are lasting. So even after I did my psychedelic journey, I could still feel that. I can feel that love that other people have for me. I can feel that now, you know, even though it's been a year since I did my my last journey. And so, um, so I think that can have a lasting effect. And um, and again, some of these things just sort of last beyond the journey. But what are you experiencing directly after the journey? Um, through integration, you'll probably gain new insights about your journey and you have an in increased level of neuroplasticity in your brain. So that's a great time to be 
um, you know, doing things that are creative. If you're, if you do, if you're in a creative field, like you paint or you are a writer, it's a great time to be writing and creating that can be very beneficial. Um, but that increased neuroplasticity also leaves you open to, again, um, changing those belief patterns. So it's a great time to implement behavior change. So let's say, let's say you had a shopping addiction, right? And you wanted to curb that shopping addiction, just a random addiction I'm throwing out here. But, <laughs> but um, let's say you wanted to curb that. Now, then that time of increased neuroplasticity lasting at least six weeks, maybe more, is a great time to be focusing on implementing that behavior change and enforcing a habit. Yeah, I found it so fascinating when you were talking about how you felt connected to people in your life and you felt loved by them even when they weren't there with you. Like that sounds like such a like introspective sort of journey to go on. Yeah, it was incredibly profound. And to describe it a little bit further, I mean, I'd only had a two gram dose at that point, And I was like lying on a mat like um, like you would in a psychedelic session or therapy session. And I had an eye mask over me. So I was in a very deeply meditative state, but it really felt like, um, and this will sound kind of woo woo, but it, this is just what I felt. It was, it felt like I had threads of light connecting me to all the people that are in my support system. And, uh, and it really just, it made me feel so loved and cared for and um, held up while I was going through this difficult, like while I was experiencing this sort of psychedelic journey. And it was really amazing to to feel that and obviously like now in my normal state of consciousness I don't necessarily like feel the thread of light but I know and I feel it in my body that love that other people have for me and so I feel like um that that connection to your support system is so uplifting and can really help certainly with resilience yeah and it's like those sensations and feelings that you were feeling during your journey carry through even into like your normal life when you're no longer you know on your trip absolutely that is so true yeah wow. it's, it's a, an amazing experience and there are many people there have been studies about this where even if people have a difficult trip where they've had some challenging things come up or traumas come up or they've had to face something really difficult during their journey they still cite their psilocybin journey or other psychedelic journey as one of the most profound things that they've ever experienced in their lives. And I had a hard time sort of getting my head around that until I actually experienced it for myself. I did go through a difficult part during my one of my journeys. And, um, and I still, even though that was a difficult moment, it was, I, I rank it up there in like the top five most profound experiences of my life for sure. Wow. And do you think that using, you know, um, like psilocybin therapy with other modalities of therapy, for example, like psychotherapy could enhance like the effects that it has on depressive disorders? Absolutely. So I think that the that integration period after, you know, doing a psychedelic assisted session, going back and working with your therapist in sort of like this talk therapy uh, avenue um, that's mm. really beneficial to people, and and that's what's coming out in the clinical trials is that's how you know that that part is super beneficial too, and that's simply because you're analyzing what went on during your journey, what did you learn from it, and you're getting feedback from your therapist and bouncing ideas off of each other to sort of understand 
what you learned during your journey. And so again, that's such a great time to be doing behavior change. So maybe your therapist works with you on what's called cognitive behavioral therapy Mm. or CBT for short. And what that really is, what CBT is, is, you know, it has something to do with psychedelics, but it's, um, you know, helping to teach you how to change um, the sort of, I, I should say, like negative thinking patterns. So again, if I think, if I have social anxiety and I think that every time I'm around other people, I behave like in an inappropriate way or like a weird way where people end up not liking me, like maybe that's just a negative pattern that I have the in in my belief um the therapist can then help you uh as well as the psychedelic they work together to sort of help you navigate that belief system that isn't really serving you and to change the belief to maybe an understanding of like hey i go and hang out with my friends all the time and they seem to still like me and that you know they reach out to me to hang out again so i guess maybe i am an okay person you know that kind of thing Yeah. And I'm really seeing like the connection to the analogy you gave us before about like the pond that was like frozen over and like in like your regular life, you can't really like get through it. But when you go on this journey, it like gives you clarity on like certain aspects of your life. Is that what it sort of does for someone? Absolutely. I mean, you're, you're, you're hitting it. You're hitting the nail on the head. So um, one of the things that I was grappling with in my own life before doing my psychedelic journey was and I'm still grappling with this, but in a different and a new and a different way. And mm. so the thing is that um, my my parents they're getting up there in years. They're my mom's eighty, almost eighty one, and my dad's you know a few years younger. But you know they've had health problems. I know they won't be. The thing is, I w- I know they won't be around forever, and that is giving me a lot of anxiety. And I'm sure part of it is that I'm also really tied into their healthcare. And so I know I it's like I know too much, you know, about like where they're at or what's going on in life and things like that. And so I just know that time is ticking and it gives me a lot of it. It used to give me so much anxiety and stress that I was you know, having difficulty sleeping, things like that. And um, when I did my psychedelic journey, I did have to face that fear. I, you know, obviously, my parents didn't die or anything during my journey, but I, it was like the, it was like the mushroom forced me to face this fear. Why are you so afraid of this? Why do you think that you can't get through this thing? Because that mm-hmm. was the belief that I had is that they're, you know, they'll pass away someday and that it'll just be this unending tunnel of grief that I'll go through for the rest of my life. And, you know, that's just a not an appropriate belief to have. I mean, I know a lot of people have that belief, but I, during my journey, it was like the mushroom really forced me to look at that and analyze why am I so, um, freaked out about this. Death is a fact of life. And, um, you know, I can get through this and I can help my parents get through it as well. Um, And meaning that like I've had, I've gotten through negative experiences or difficult experiences in my past. They were very difficult. I navigated them. I have resilience within me. So it's like the mushroom showed me to look at the tools that I do already have and how I can work with those tools as well as my support system for when the inevitable happens. We all have death and grief in our lives. And so, yes, it will be difficult. I will be upset, but I will be able to navigate it. And I didn't know that before I took the psychedelic or my brain probably knew it, but it wasn't letting me me know it, I guess, you know, so that's yeah. the thing. 
that's such a like really interesting perspective as well to have on like things happening in your life and during like your journey you said you had a trip sitter and also um, a psilocybin guide is that correct? Yeah so I hired a psilocybin guide his name is Gabriel Castillo and his company is called Finally Detached and so we met at a cabin and um, he brought a female trip sitter with so that I would feel very safe you know because I was be working with a male in, in a remote location and yeah. I, you know, I and I had fully vetted him before that, before going into this um, session, and felt very safe. But you know, certainly wanted a female present just in case I also needed to. Um, you know, when you're on a psychedelic, you can lose some coordination a little bit, and so mm. sometimes you might need help, like going to the bathroom or, and that sort of thing. I didn't get that um, deep in my journey where that would have happened, but it was really nice to have her there. And the difference is that um, Gabriel Castillo, the guide, he was helping me navigate the journey and, um, you know, not really interfering or anything, but kind of just guiding me through the experience. And then the trip center is there to really keep me feeling comfortable, help me if I need any help, get me water, whatever it would be that I might need. That's really what she was doing. And she just provided a lot of comfort by being with me. And so that's mm -hmm. why a trip center can be really important. Awesome. And with the guide, were they sort of giving you prompts or like what was the experience with them guiding you through the journey? Sure. So initially it was just guiding me into it. So I had taken the psilocybin and then um, he was kind of providing like a meditation. So if you think about using like a meditation app or something like that, it was really a lot like that, but mm. also creating a lot of ceremony around the psilocybin um around taking psilocybin. And that's something that's really recommended. Um, so psilocybin historically has been used by indigenous cultures, and they have developed a lot of ceremony around its usage. And so bringing that into your experience can be highly beneficial. And that's simply because there's something called, um, there's a term in psychedelic uh, um, speak, it's called um, set and setting. And so when you are going into a journey you want to be in the right mindset to do that. That's what the set means. And then the setting is really your environment and what is happening around you and who, are, who you're with and all of that. So with with mindset, with the set part, um, it's good to be in a headspace where you don't have a lot of like deadlines coming up, where you can really just focus on your journey um, and you might set an intention. So in yoga class, some people might be familiar with that, where you set an intention before your yoga practice. It's similar to that, except I, really the idea with with mindset, you can certainly set a specific intention, but a lot of practitioners recommend that what you do instead is set the mindset of just being open to what the mushroom is going to teach you about what you need to know in your own mind. Yeah. And so that's set. And then there's setting. And again, setting um, can be a lot of different things. It can be being in a comfortable room, or it might be that you're out in nature and that you're in a safe spot in nature to enjoy your journey. Um, but it also involves the the idea of sort of easing you into your journey. And so that's what the guide was really doing was creating this meditation to really not only get me in the right mindset or help me feel really safe and comfortable, but also to, um, you know, just kind of ease me into that experience of then being in an altered state of consciousness. So he was doing things like, um, you know, asking me to give give thanks to the north, south, east, and west, to the earth below, to the to whatever is above. 
And then I'll be, you know, giving thanks to the mushroom itself because, you know, this was the thing that was going to take me on the journey. Yeah. It was just really ceremonial and special for that reason. Yeah, that honestly sounds so beautiful and like such a touching experience to it have. Was. Yes, so much. Yeah. And when we're talking about setting, how do we work on creating like the most optimal setting to do this in and that kind of environment? Yeah, I think it's going to vary um, person to person. So in a psychedelic assisted therapy session, obviously you'll be in with the therapist in some type of um, space, but often they create it to be very soothing, almost like a yoga space and that kind of thing. I keep going back to the yoga experience, but um, yeah. But really for anyone else, I mean, if you were, um, you know, planning a journey with a with a guide, the guide will help you create the setting. But if you're doing it with yourself and, a, and you know, a trip sitter that you trust, um, it might be that you're in your own apartment or house and you just go into a room you feel really safe and comfortable in, maybe having comfortable pillows around you, a blanket, having some music playing, things like that are really important. But um, also there's a lot of people report having even better experiences out in nature. So um, again, in a safe, safe scenario where you have somebody with you to make sure that you are safe, that's always really important. But um, I did one day where I was, you know, for my journey, I did one day where I was doing the like lying down on a mat with the eye mask. And then the next day was out in nature and I had the mountains around me and, you know, just so many beautiful trees. And it was just a lovely day. And that was really profound too, to really feel connected to nature while you're going through this experience uh, that can that can also be fairly profound. So it really will depend on the person and what resonates with them. Yeah, 100%. And I know before you said that it's not really an addictive type of drug, but if someone's having these journeys and they're really loving how they're feeling during each one of them, can there be a risk that they want to keep using this as a way to access these emotions? I suppose that's a possibility, but I think that um, because the psychedelic really teaches you the, those tools that you have within yourself, you would probably recognize that you do need to be in a normal state of consciousness to function in, in a lot of daily life. And so I think you would recognize that and not um, have like a psychological addiction to be in an altered state of mind. Yeah. 100%. And we've also talked about more of the short term and how integration works. Now, in terms of like the long term, how does, you know, the psilocybin sort of journey impact our long term resilience? Yeah, I think that's a great question, too. Um, and, you know, we're still studying all of that. But, you know, what what I think we're learning is that these beneficial effects can last for up to a year. And part of the process of integration is is it's not just that integration happens right away after your psychedelic session. It certainly does. But you can can keep integrating your experience. Um, so, for example, I did my psychedelic journeys last August. And so it's been a year and I'm still gleaning insights from that journey. So I'll still like look at my journal where I was like scribbling furiously after my journey and, you know, writing down all the things that happened. Or I just might have a thought that crops up, um, you know, I'll be thinking about the journey and I'll remember something and or I'll, I'll sort of analyze it a little bit more and something new will resonate with me. So I'm still constantly learning from my experience. And I think that tends to happen to other people too, especially if they keep thinking about it 
you will gain new insights and that can continue to help you um, you know, make behavior changes or change your belief patterns, even now that you're back in a normal state of consciousness, things like that. Yeah, for sure. And it's reminding me of when we were talking about like the meaning of resilience and how it's something that you continue to develop on. You don't just do it once and you're like, oh yeah, I'm resilient now. Like it kind of reminds me of that. Like you do this journey and then you have these thoughts that keep popping up into the future and it's something you can reflect back on and decide if that's something you want to work on within yourself. So that's so interesting. Yeah. And I think that people like uh, frequently will do something like, well, they'll, they'll, they'll plan a psychedelic journey maybe once a year. It might be more frequently. It might be every six months or every or maybe quarterly or something like that. Because again, any new, if you go into it again, if you do another psilocybin journey, you'll probably learn more and new things, you know, since your li- our lives are always changing. And so, you know, you can be one and done or you might do it more frequently um, but it's not something that you're going to be doing every single day in terms of like a mac, you know, a, a larger dose. Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of that with us. And I know we've talked a bit about your own personal experience, but I'd love to jump into our um, practices section where we just chat a bit more about like your experience with it. So um, could you tell me if there were any challenges, like key challenges you went through during your experience? Yeah, I can. So, uh, you know, that challenge of sort of facing this idea of losing my parents, that mm. did come up. And so it was interesting because the, that came up on the day that I was sort of out in nature. And what happened was initially, um, as the psychedelic was taking effect, I was sort of looking out and seeing the mountains and the trees. And I was like, oh, it's so pretty. Like the texture is so beautiful. The mountains <laughs> and the trees and the the leaves are so green and the moss is so green. I was kind of yeah. laughing at myself thinking, oh, is this all a psychedelic does? Is like making you think everything's really pretty. <laughs> so yeah. I was kind of laughing at myself. But then, <laughs> you know, I went a little bit deeper. It went a little deeper. And so I was thinking about some people that I had recently lost in my life. Um, I'd lost a friend to um, a, heroin, a heroin overdose, a heroin laced with fentanyl. And um, so that was really devastating. And I'd lost another friend who just died of natural causes unexpectedly. And, um, you know, those those losses have really had a profound impact on my life. And so I was thinking about them, but I didn't feel, I didn't feel sad thinking about those losses. I felt really, I had a lot of gratitude for like what, for their, for, for their impacts on my life. And I can almost feel their presence, not not in like a ghost way or anything like that, but it just within me, like those people are still within me simply because I know and lo- I, I've known them and loved them, right? So that was a really kind of cool, profound experience. And so I was really euphoric, really. The, the, there was a little light mist coming down, was hitting my face and I'm super euphoric and just enjoying myself. And then a storm rolled in. And so I was forced to go inside the cabin and because it was like lightning and thunder and everything. And we were on top of a mountain. So yeah. getting indoors. And so once I got inside, I think that's also right at the same time that I hit the peak dose. So obviously, like you ingest psilocybin, it takes a little while to work its way through your liver and then have the activation of everything. And so I think I was just hitting like the peak of my experience at that point in time. And some anxiety did crop up. And, you know, I think that came about right when I was like looking at the fireplace and it looked like the rocks on the fireplace were pulsing and moving. And again, I mentioned the couch, like the breathing couch, which I did not like. 
just great. But, um, so that was a little frightening for me. Um, but you know, once you're in a, psil- a psilocybin journey, you can't, there's no unsubscribe button. There's no delete, yeah. control, alt, delete moment. And so I had to force myself to really sit with the uncomfortable part of the experience and really just what I felt was anxiety or that I didn't want to be doing this anymore. Yeah. But the more I sat with it and kind of leaned into, okay, you can get through this, you have resilience, you can do this. And um, you just have to navigate this. I kept thinking about, I kept going back to like my marathon running days where you're in the last like six miles and it's just painful. And you're like, I can get through this. It was a lot like that. Yeah. So it was really uncomfortable for a minute. But I I forced myself to look at what was making me anxious. And it was really that this thought about losing my parents was coming up. And, um, and I, I, again, forced myself to sit with it. And I, it, I felt like my mind was just showing me all of the things that I had gone through in my life um, before. So, you know, dealing with lo- previous losses, dealing with a lot of, I've had a lot of um, physical illnesses that have occurred in my life. And so dealing with those multiple surgeries, recoveries from those surgeries, just really difficult things I've gone through. And so I was really focusing on those things and then learning, well, yeah, I managed to get through those things because of this and this and that. I'm a resilient person. I have a support system. And um, and so then I had to rethink my belief pattern around this idea of losing my parents. And on the other side of that, I almost kind of like I equate it to going through kind of a dark tunnel in my journey. And then on the other side of it, I was still having the psychedelic effects, but I returned to that element of euphoria and this amazing sense of peace just washed over me and I I don't think I've ever felt that amount of peace before it was so profound and from there um the rain had stopped outside so I could go back outside and so my guide and I and um and my trip sitter we all went outside and sat around a bonfire and then they worked on integration with me asking me my about my experience but yeah definitely had some wonderful things happen the euphoria and then also some difficult things, but I wouldn't trade going through that little difficult spot in my trip for anything because it taught me so much. Yeah, for sure. I mean, a breathing couch would definitely freak me out too. <laughs> yeah. um, but that sounds like such a journey, literally, like the highs and then the lows and then coming out on the other side and it's still being like a really positive experience. So would you say that there really is nothing to fear if you kind of embrace the journey and for what it is? Yeah, that those I couldn't have said it better than you did. <laughs> Absolutely. If you are willing to open your mind to whatever might happen on your journey in terms of like what what might you face or uncover in your mind you will like most likely have a reasonably good experience even if you face something difficult along the way it will still be a profound and beneficial experience at least in my opinion so Yeah, amazing. And for someone who might be listening to this or has been considering this process or going on this journey, what's like their first step? How do they, you know, get there? Yeah, I mean, it all depends on where you live. Certainly, there are places that have now legalized um, psychedelic assisted therapy. So in the US, that would be, I believe, in Oregon, the state of Oregon Mm -hmm. and the state of Colorado. Um, I know that I can't remember the status in Australia, but they just pushed some legislation through there. And so 
Um, so I know that there's some legalities coming up where it's becoming legal, I think. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, but you know, it's going to depend on where you live. So I think that first step would be if you would like to work with a therapist is to find a psychedelic assisted therapist that has some experience with this and training. They've gone through training. So in the US, there are organizations that are like creating accreditation for psychedelic assisted therapists and things like that. And so it's different country to country. But if you can find someone who's who's certainly experienced in it, has gone through some trainings, that would probably be your first step. If you don't have access to psychedelic assisted therapists, you can certainly seek out a guide. I highly recommend my guide here in the US. Again, Gabriel, Gabriel Castillo at Finally Detached. He's amazing. But there are, you know, other guides out there. The only caveat that I would say, and this is um, a caveat, whether you're working with a guide or a therapist or like a shaman or something like that, or if you're going on a retreat, there are, of course, psychedelic retreats all over the world. But um, it, and the caveat that I want to state is that to fully vet the person beforehand, if you can, as much as possible, mm. read reviews. If you're going on a retreat, read reviews of the retreat. Um, if you are going to work with a therapist, check out their credentials, check out where they were trained, um, you know, just check out all of those things. And then same with the guide. And the reason for that is that, uh, of course, you're in it when you're on a psychedelic, you're in an altered state of consciousness. You're also um, very vulnerable in that experience and you're more open to suggestibility. So you don't want to be working with someone who is potentially going to assault you. And I don't want to yeah. scare anyone by bringing that up. However, there are reports of that, that that has happened. And it's not only happened with underground guides, it's also happened with legit therapists. And so it's just something to be very aware of. So um, a, a, a sort of a thing that you can put in place to help protect you a little bit is to ensure that your psychedelic guide or therapist is asking you about consent before you go into a session. And so what I mean by that is, in a psychedelic session, you know, no sexual touch should be on the table at all. But what they may ask you regarding consent is something like, hey, if something difficult comes up, is it okay? Would you like me to hold your hand during a session if something difficult is happening with you? Or would you like me to like, you know, pat your shoulder or whatever that might be, just a very therapeutic type of touch? You can say no to that, obviously. Like you don't have to consent to any touch at all. Um, yeah. But my point is that your 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 guide or therapist should be asking you about that well before you actually are there for the psychedelic session. If they don't, I think that's a red flag. That doesn't necessarily mean they're going to assault you, but it's a red flag that they aren't doing their due diligence as a therapist or guide. They should also be asking you about underlying conditions, um, any uh, any medications that you might be taking uh, to to avoid interactions and then underlying conditions. It's important to understand whether someone like has a heart condition or things like that, because psilocybin will elevate your heart rate a little bit. And so it's just important to know those things. So they should be asking you about all of that stuff before you ever do a session. If they don't, I would say that is a red flag that they're not someone that you should be working with. Okay, amazing. So there are definitely some serious considerations to make before you go on this. And obviously doing your research is very important. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and in terms of, you know, safety in general, um, you know, in my, in my book, I, I use the framework for that clinical trial, uh, clinical trial researchers do in that, okay, if you have this underlying condition, um, you know, that that is possibly 
uh, well, they, they'll, they essentially like um, exclude people who have certain conditions from doing clinical trials. Uh, now, that's not to say that that person, that it's totally off limits for that person to do a psychedelic. It's more that they may need um, a healthcare professional present, not just a therapist, but also a healthcare pro professional or something like that. So in the book, I go through all of the things that somebody would be um, excluded from participating in an actual psilocybin clinical trial. So those things, again, are cardiovascular conditions. Mm -hmm. um, they might be having a, a personality disorder, so like borderline personality disorder. Now, of course, there are clinical trials with psilocybin focusing specifically on borderline personality disorder. But if you have something like that, I would recommend fully talking to your therapist about the conditions that you have and then figuring out whether you need additional healthcare people present. Amazing. And do you recommend people use other therapeutic methods before they settle on using psilocybin to, you know, help them with their depressive disorders? Yeah, you know, that's such an interesting question because somebody earlier today when I was being interviewed, they asked me, they said that some therapists out there are worried that instead of people going through all the other methods for dealing with depression, that they'll just jump straight to using psilocybin. And, you know, I have just a mixed mixed feelings about that. Certainly, there are, um, you know, aspects that you can try. You can try meditation, um, you know, and mindfulness and things like that to help with depression and anxiety. But many times those things don't work. So what's your next step? Sure, you could talk to a regular therapist and get in on an SSRI. But as I mentioned before, SSRIs do have side effects that might be um, uncomfortable for pe for certain people. And um, you have to be on them continually. And then eventually you you you're addicted to the the I'm not the psychedelic, you're addicted to the SSRI. And it's hard to wean off. I mean, yes, you can wean off of them, but it's very difficult. So when, when therapists are saying, oh, what if people go directly to psychedelics? I don't see a problem with that. I think that as long as you're doing it in a therapy with a, if you have a, if you have a mental health condition, it's a really great idea to do that with a mental health professional, but I don't see anything wrong with you going straight to trying psilocybin in a psychedelic assisted therapy session to ease your depression, because we do have research now that is showing that it's, it has a lasting effect. So it's not something that you have to take over and over again. Yeah, 100%. And I feel like a lot of people do try mindfulness and they try meditating, um, but it's obviously not for everyone. And sometimes I feel like your mind is just so busy. It can just yeah. like it just can't concentrate through these methods. So I think it's great to have different options and such a different option like taking psilocybin. Yes, absolutely. So I see nothing wrong with going directly to that avenue if other, especially if something like um, mindfulness and, uh, you know, meditation and things like that, or just other relaxation techniques or, you know, exercise can be beneficial for depression too. So you've yeah. tried all these things, you're still yeah. exercising, you're still meditating, but you're like, I need something additional. You know, I understand that. Yeah. Awesome. Um, I'd love to jump into our questions from the audience now. So I've got a couple here yeah. for you. And my first one is, are there any potential long-term effects of psilocybin therapy on people's mental health and well-being? Yeah, they tend to be relatively beneficial effects. Now we're still studying how long those effects last, but um, we, we, it looks like through research that a lot of those beneficial effects for health and well-being and mental health um, last about a year. They may 
subside a little bit as you get closer to that year mark, but they, but we know that they do last. So it's great to know that. Yeah, awesome. And how important is like the psychological preparation before you start your journey? I think it's pretty important. Um, you know, again, if you're going in with this idea of being really afraid of, of using a psychedelic or, um, you know, your, your, your mind is spinning about so many different things like a deadline you have coming up and you've got so many tasks to do or all, or maybe you're worried about your finances or something to an extreme. It may not be the right time to go into that session. You want to be able to really focus on your journey. You want to feel relaxed going into it. And I know that's easier said than done. Um, but if you are super going through a super stressful time in your life, it might be a good idea to hold off until you feel a little bit more relaxed and then go into it. Yeah, for sure. Great. Well, thank you for answering those ones. And lastly, we've got our open mic section. So um, the floor is yours. You can talk about anything that you would like to. Wow. Okay. So I love the open mic section. <laughs> I, I'm probably going to continue to talk about psilocybin, um, but I would love to talk about psilocybin and the intersection of women's health because there's so many fascinating things to sort of talk about. Um, yeah. One thing I want to bring up is, um, you know, I mentioned this sort of earlier in the um, in the episode here is that uh, women's health, especially in the U.S., is kind of like a second thought. So in um, it, it wasn't until the early 1990s that women were actually included in clinical trials. They were largely excluded from early stage clinical trials before that. And that's had some really lasting effects on women's health. Women are more likely to get gaslit at the doctor's office where doctors like poo-poo any condition that they have is sort of and chalk it up to anxiety or hysteria or whatever. And that's really frustrating. Um, but again, this has had some lasting effects on women's health over the decades. And just to put that into perspective, the, this little timeline I like to bring up um, puts this into perspective. And so men had a drug for male sexual dysfunction that that came out in 1998, at least in the U.S., and everyone knows what that is. It's Viagra. And so mm. at that point in time, the medical community, let alone anyone you might have been having sex with, didn't even have a complete picture of what the clitoris is. There's this whole internal structure to the clitoris. And so that didn't happen until 2005, if you can believe that, where we learned about this internal structure. And then um, it wasn't until 2015, which feels like yesterday, that women got a drug for female sexual dysfunction. So that's a 17-year gap from when men got a drug for a condition to when women got a drug for a condition. And so that is one of the reasons that I really felt strongly about writing a book on psilocybin specifically for women's health because, um, you know, women have a menstrual cycle and, you know, our menstrual cycles can be affected by a psilocybin journey and vice versa, the cycle can affect a journey. And so researchers have kind of been digging into this a little bit. We don't have um, solidified research yet, but we do have case studies and anecdotal reports that women, when they use psilocybin, if they have a menstrual cycle, a lot of times their cycle will come a little bit early. And then um, it's also, there's potential there that psilocybin may help with re-regulating the menstrual cycle, especially if it's become irregular from a condition such as premenstrual dysphoric disorder or polycystic ovarian syndrome, even endometriosis can cause an irregular cycle. 
And so um, it, there's this potential there for that. So it's possible, and we, we, did, we definitely do not have any research on this yet, but it's possible because it can re potentially re-regulate the menstrual cycle that it may even be able to help with fertility. So that's, I think, an important thing to consider. And, um, you know, I was curious when in a cycle, when in your menstrual cycle, is it best to do a journey? And I did, I talked to an indigenous wisdom expert and she was really knowledgeable about this. So again, going back to this idea that indigenous cultures have used psilocybin for, you know, years and years and years, like hundreds of years. I don't even know how long, but um, they have a lot of, of knowledge about psilocybin. And so we think of science in, in the main, you know, in mainstream medical community, we think of science as the process of doing something over and over again to produce the same result. But that's yeah. exactly what indigenous wisdom, I mean, indigenous people have done for however long they've been doing it. And so they do have results from what they've been doing. And so that's why I leaned on this indigenous wisdom expert to really kind of navigate this concept of when in your cycle, would it be best to do a journey? And she recommended around the time of ovulation as being more beneficial than if you're closer to menstruation. And that's simply because, uh, and this act actually makes sense from a very scientific perspective too, it's that our bodies, um, when we get closer to our periods, all the like energy mechanisms in our body are being, you know, shuttled towards the womb, right? And, but when we're at ovulation, we have a bit more energy in our body. And again, this makes sense from a scientific perspective, because as we get into that luteal phase, which is the second half of our cycle, essentially, so after ovulation, um, our bodies become more insulin resistant. And again, that's because all the energy, so like the way we process glu glu glucose and things like that, again, are being sent to the womb. And so that's why we have cravings during that luteal phase. Um, but another thing to consider is that um, during a, for a psilocybin journey, a lot of people fast a little bit before their journey. And that might just be the day of that they don't eat or um, they might eat very lightly um, and very like, you know, whole foods, nutritious foods, fruits and veggies and things like that. Um, or they may completely fast for even a week leading up to it. It just really depends on your personal practices in terms of what people do, but it would be very difficult to fast um, near the time of your cycle. You'd be much more able to do that during the um, during your ovulation uh, time. So that was a really interesting thing that that um, this indigenous wisdom expert taught me. So I thought that was fun to share. She also shared that if people are microdosing, um, when how to do that. So a microdose for anyone who isn't familiar is taking a very small amount of psilocybin where you wouldn't have perceptual psychedelic effects. You're not going to have the couch breathing next to you. <laughs> You're not going to have like the the crazy colors or like the geometric shapes and patterns. You're not going to see that. You could still like drive on a microdose in comparison of doses. So a, like a, the, the largest dose that I took in one of my therapeutic settings was 3.5 grams about. And um, a, a microdose would be like one tenth of a gram. So again, very wow. different experience. But people do microdose as a way of combating depression as well. And they follow different protocols. There are several different protocols out there. Some popular ones are the Fatiman protocol on the Stamet stack. So if anyone is interested, they can Google those and you'll come up with the, the exact protocol. But whatever protocol that you're following for microdosing, and what I mean by protocol is like uh, how often you do it, how many days a week you're doing it. Are you doing it one day on, then one day off? Or 
how long do you do that before taking a break? That's what I mean by a protocol. But the indigenous wisdom expert recommended that whatever microdosing protocol that you choose to do, to do that for three months to see how it affects you because in terms of your cycle, especially. So if you were taking, um, if you were microdosing for your cycle, if you thought that it was potentially regulating your cycle, then um, it would be good to do that for three months because it may take three months to sort of really take effect for you. So that was something that was interesting that was brought up. And that um, the other thing I want to talk about was menopause. So um, mm-hmm. menopause, uh, in menopause, people have several different symptoms that can come up. And one, the, one of the most common, of course, is depression. And so we've been talking about depression a l- quite a bit on this podcast. I thought I would talk about that a little bit. So um, one of the first things that people that happens when people go to see their doctor for menopausal related depression is they're going to get prescribed a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. And, you know, that's fine if that's something that you want to take. But again, that will blunt your lows, but also your highs. And so a psych- uh, a psil- taking psilocybin instead or doing a journey or even microdosing might be something that you want to consider for menopause. If that, if you feel, if you feel called to try the psilocybin, that's you know something to consider. Um, the other thing that is really interesting regarding menopause and um, psilocybin, at least in my opinion, is so. Um, so we already know that psilocybin can help people with trauma. There have been clinical trials about helping people with PTSD and stuff like that. Yeah. What people don't realize is that, um, in many cases, is that. The, the menopause symptoms that you have, that can become worse if you've had adverse, uh, if you've had a lot of trauma in your life. So there's something out there called adverse childhood experiences or ACEs for short. And so adverse childhood experiences or ACEs are things that happened in your childhood that were dramatic or traumatic, I should say. So things like um, if you if you endured abuse, if you lived through a natural disaster, if you have systemic racism in your community, um, if you had parents that separated and the divorce was really messy, all of that can be a trauma that you endured in childhood. And those traumas that we experience in childhood actually physically change our stress response. And um, so that's a really uh, important thing to understand is that when we have that altered stress response in adulthood, that um, that actually can affect us long term and impact how we experience menopause. So um, what we do know about psychedelics is they can help with trauma. So I really see this potential for psychedelics, especially psilocybin, to help ease traumas before we get into menopause or when we are in menopause to potentially lessen our um, our symptoms of menopause, including um, depression, menopausal related depression, but it's possible for even hot flashes, maybe. Um, and backing up to my discussion about the menstrual cycle, uh, I think it would be important to share the mechanisms of why psilocybin might impact the menstrual cycle. And again, we're still learning about this in research, but what we do know is that the menstrual cycle occurs along what's called the hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis. So what I mean by that is that you know, your brain can, is connected with your ovaries in this sort of feedback loop. And when one hormone kicks off, let's say estrogen, it tells another hormone what to do. And that's why our cycles happen that the way, the way that they do. Well, we use psilocybin 
we also, um, so we, we also in general just have our, what's called the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. This is a different axis, but it controls our stress response or it involves our stress response. When we use psilocybin, we are really activating things along that stress response. And so as you can tell by their names, these axes overlap. Your hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis overlaps with your hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, of course, with the hypothalamus and the pituitary gland. And so these two overlap overlap and can potentially affect one or the other. We already know that when we have our menstrual cycles, we might be more stressed. Or if we're more stressed when we have our menstrual cycle, or I'm sorry, when if, our, if we're having a very intense menstrual cycle, that can impact our stress as well. And so Again, there's this interplay between these two axes. And so that would be the mechanism, the potential mechanism for why psilocybin might be able to re-regulate the menstrual cycle. And so there's potential benefits to regarding this overlapping of the axes in 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 regards to menopause. So and then one more thing to talk about would be yeah. I started to talk about um, female sexual dysfunction at the beginning of the show. And uh, I'm sorry, earlier when I was when we started the open mic part. And I wanted to circle back to that because um, female sexual dysfunction is such a prevalent symptom of menopause, or it can crop up quite a bit in menopause. And, you know, so I asked some experts out there, can psilocybin help with your sex life, essentially? And um, it was an interesting conversation that I had with a really great expert on this. And, um, and, we, and she did see some potential there. So one of the things that is, um, well, two of the things that are protective against female sexual dysfunction would be having a really healthy body image and then also having really good intimate partner communication. And so we know that psilocybin can potentially help with body image. There's clinical trials going on right now for psilocybin to help with things like anorexia nervosa. Um, that's the, the mm. specific eating disorder being studied with psilocybin right now. And the results are coming out to be pretty good or, or like really promising. And so um, there's potential that uh, that go undergoing a psychedelic journey helps with body image. So again, that could then um, in turn help with female sexual dysfunction. And then the other thing was, um, I mentioned intimate partner communication. And psilocybin, as we know, as I've described earlier, helps us feel more connected. And so it might be something that you end up doing a psilocybin journey with your partner and then you feel more connected. That's not even necessary. You can go off and do a psilocybin journey on your own, let's say in a psilocybin assisted therapy session or with a guide or something like that, and then come back and be with your partner and feel ultimately much more connected than you did before. And I can attest to that. I, um, uh, I wasn't dealing with female sexual dysfunction, but uh, I, you know, I went off and did my journey. My husband wasn't with me, but I came back home and then I felt like, uh, I don't know, exponentially more connected to him than I did before, which sounds really crazy, but it's true. I feel this really deep connection now. It's not that I didn't feel connected to him before. I certainly did, but that is like tenfold now that connection that I feel. And he didn't do anything, you know, he didn't do anything different. He didn't yeah. do it. So I do see a lot of potential to help with um, things like female sexual dysfunction, but even just fostering more communication within your relationship could be beneficial. Psilocybin could be beneficial for that. I'll pause now and let you talk for a bit. <laughs> no, that was so fascinating. I feel like what I'm learning is that psilocybin is such a diverse drug or tool, if you don't want to use the word drug, but like 
it there's so many different benefits to it and it addresses so many different parts of like our life like depressive disorders like if you're going through you know as a woman you go through many different things so if you want to address any aspects of that and also you mentioned eating disorders do you feel like like research is going to keep discovering new aspects of like life that taking psilocybin can impact I do. I mean, there's so much out there already. Um, you know, they're they're studying it for alcohol use disorder and and opioid use disorder. Yeah. It's being studied for smoking cessation and on the topic of women's health. Women actually have different nicotine receptors than men, or the female body has a different nicotine receptor, which is really weird to think about. But if you think about all of the existing methods out there for smoking cessation, they all involve act, you know. Um, playing on that nicotine receptor. So there, you know, there are patches, there's nicotine gum, all of that. They typically don't work as well for women. And that's why. So I see potential once research gets going on this topic to, um, and I think it actually is already in process with smoking cessation for that to help women who are trying to quit and have had problems quitting in the past. So yeah, I think we're just going to keep discovering different things. I mean, we recently discovered that psilocybin sessions have helped bring back loss of um, smell from if you've had long COVID from the pandemic, if you've had long COVID and you lost your sense of smell or even just a normal uh, COVID experience, but you had that loss of smell and it hasn't returned. um, Psilocybin has been shown to be effective for helping it come back. So fascinating. Yeah, no, that's super interesting. Um, I didn't even know like half the things I did uh, at like the start of this episode. I feel like I've just learned so much. So thank you so much for joining us today, Jennifer, and being so open with us as well about your experience. Of course, I'm happy to share. Thank you so much for having me. Not a worry at all. Um, And for those who want to find out more about you, where can they go? Uh, yes, you can find me. Uh, my website is jenniferchesick.com and the last name is spelled C-H-E-S-A-K. Or you can also find me on all of the social media platforms at Jen Chesick. So J-E-N-C-H-E-S-A-K. And the book is available anywhere books are sold. I always encourage people to order from their local independent bookstore if possible, but it doesn't matter to me where you get your books from. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you so much again. Uh, We also have Jennifer's details in the description below. But to everyone listening, we'll see you guys next time. You have been listening to Bouncing Back, the personal resilience science insights podcast produced by the Life Management Science Labs. Listen to episodes from LMSL's 10 Life Management Perspectives on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube or other podcasting apps on your smartphone. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating our show, sharing it and subscribing to our channel as it helps other people find it and us grow to bring you more quality resources. More of our work can be found on our website, pr.lmsl.net, where you can join our movement. I'm Joanna. Thanks for tuning in.